Our chronological look at the career of Carol Kane continues on Praising Kane with Ken Russell's Valentino. Praising Kane, and I'm your esteemed host and guide, Liam O'Donnell, and with me as always is my lifelong frenemy, Doug Tilly. Doug, how are you doing right now? Liam, sometimes at the beginning of our podcast, I say things are great or things are not great, just kind of generally, and I don't know how sincere I'm being necessarily. Yeah, you just say stuff. You just talk out of your booty hole. I start talking and the words just flow out, but I have to say that right this very second, I'm doing pretty well. And you know, one of the contributing factors of that is, Liam, I recently got a haircut for the first time in over Whoa. a year. And I have to say, you know, a haircut, I don't like getting haircuts. I find the whole process very uncomfortable. It's just a little too, I mean, I just don't like the physical content tact aspect of it. I'm a, I'm a strange guy like that. But I have to say, not that it wasn't still a little bit awkward, it was. But just getting all of this goddamn hair off my head, it just feels so freeing. I feel like a whole different person. I love that, Doug, and I love that for you. Uh, oh, I feel I feel the exact opposite, actually, mm. of what you're saying, in that I'm always hungry for physical contact, but I'm always worried because when you have physical contact with people, that's then means that you are interacting with those people. So it's like, I don't know that I want to interact with the people, but I do kind of want to be touched a little bit. And what's great about getting a haircut, at least for me, is I have a person and I've already decided that I trust this person. So then when they're messing with my hair, it's like, yeah, some guy or girl who I already kind of trust and think is okay is messing with my hair. That sounds great. Like that's like what I want in life all the time. Um, and, and honestly is like a level of intimacy I'm comfortable with. Like, yes, mess with my hair, touch me in ways that are a little bit intimate, but not sexual. Don't ask me to admit that I'm wrong though. Cause that's a little too vulnerable for me. We do actually have some Carol Kane related news here. Um, uh, Big Slick announces celeb lineup for virtually talented show. This event was an online uh, event organized by um, Kansas City area native and Big Slick coach David Keckner, as well as Rob Riggle, Paul Rudd, Eric Stone Street, and Jason Sudeikis. Um, which I, I got to tell you, Doug, I've become a big Jason Sudeikis fan recently, so I'm excited about all of that. Uh, this event also featured on June 11th Weird Al. Uh, Blake Voigt, Beth Dover, um, David Wayne, Jake Tapper, Joe Latruglio, Kat N- McNamara, Kevin Pollock, Nate Bargat- Bargatze. How do you, I, forget, I always forget how to say his name. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> he's, a, he's, a, he's a comedian who I actually think is really funny, but I always I never have to say his name, so I'm always like, Nate Bargatze? Bargatze? I don't know. I, this is probably a bit in his fucking stand-up. Uh, Will Forte, Zachary Levy, uh, and of course our own Carol Kane for a, a very brief appearance. Can we say that that she was a, a part of this thing? This was like maybe two minutes out of her day for like on Zoom and that was it, right? Like this was not a huge commitment from Carol Kane, this performance. Yeah, I don't even think it was on Zoom, right? It seemed like it was just a pre-filmed thing that she just, that uh, someone just cut filmed her in. on a phone yeah, and just cut yeah. it in, which is which is fine. Just to let people know, by the way. So Big Slick, this started as a poker tournament be, between like Paul Rudd and Jason Sudeikis and Rob Riggle. So they would raise money for this cause called Children's Mercy, which is like a children's health organization. And so now that it's gone online because of, of COVID, they did like a talent show with all sure. these famous faces. And the Carol Kane section is... I mean, it's interesting where she is sitting in her, I guess, her apartment. Sorry, no, please continue. Tell me everything about this. No, I think it's part of a like a bit. Like there's a yeah. few people who are pretending to be assaulted in their apartments, apparently. Yes. Like her, yeah. Louis Black, other people. And uh, it's just like, why? I, it's not clear to me what the joke is. Now, granted... Doug, did you watch this whole thing back to back? Oh, absolutely not. I, I actually yeah, just skimmed through because I was looking for the Carol King content. That said, I'm a fan of many of the people involved with right. this. And it, it does, 
I, you look, it's for a very good cause, but there's a reason you probably haven't heard about this. It's kind of a local charity. It's a way for them to have a bit of fun, right? A talent show with all these people goofing off. So it's not meant to be taken very seriously. But uh, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't going to sit down and spend 90 minutes or whatever watching this shit. Well, and I think part of the reality with these sorts of events is that not everyone who is a hilarious entertainer is good at just making some shit up and filming it on their phone. Yeah. Like, that's, that, that takes a special kind of person to actually be good at that. And so I'm sure parts of this thing are hilarious, and I'm sure parts of it are a real test of your fortitude. And, you know, it's it's up to you to decide if it's worth checking out. It's just on YouTube. You can find it. Um, you know, if, if like us, you're obsessed with Carol Kane, it might be worth watching. But I don't know otherwise if, if you should watch all was it an hour and a half? I think it was longer, wasn't it? Or yeah, well, kind of... it, it was the, the first like twenty minutes. I think are just like a because um, it was a live stream. Oh, uh, it, it was just yeah, the yeah. intro stuff. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, sure, yeah. Sure. So, I, so I'll put I'll put a link to that in the show notes if you want to check it out. That's the big slick uh, virtual talented, sh- uh, virtually talented show. Uh, mm-hmm. You can check it out for yourself. Mm-hmm. On this episode, as we said, we're discussing 1977's Valentino, directed by Ken Russell. Uh, but we wanted to point out that just uh, the year before this started filming, there was a TV movie version of this story the legend of valentino 1975 and the 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 cast for this thing franco nero as valentino suzanne plachette as june mathis judd hirsch as uh jake auerbach uh milton jack Burl. auerbach sorry jack sorry my bad yes okay uh milton burl as uh lasky uh just a just a stacked uh cast of people doug um why didn't we just watch this TV movie again? Oh, I guess because Carol Kane's not in it. But this sounds like something you would want to see, right? Like, it sounds like it could be very interesting. Yeah, I mean, we were all big Franco Nero fans before he started working with Kevin Spacey. Yeah, so. 100%. <laughs> Fuck. But I was going to make that joke, and I'm so glad you got there before me. <laughs> but I, I think Franco Nero is a very interesting casting for Rudolph Valentino, having now seen the Ken Russell version of the story. For one thing... He's actually Italian, so that kind of fits into the story a little bit better. But also, look, whatever you can say about Franco Nero and his disturbing uh, wish to work with Kevin Spacey, he was a strikingly handsome man with those very piercing uh, blue eyes in in you know when in his work in the sixties and seventies. And he, I think he makes a really interesting um, choice to play Valentino in this role. So I have not seen this TV movie. It's not very regularly available. Even the one version that I have seen online is sort of a scratchy TV recording. I'd love to see this. I mean, with that cast, Milton Berle, Suzanne Plachette, Judd Hirsch, I'd like to see this. It's, it, it, in some ways, the cast is a little more interesting than the one that we get in the uh, Ken Russell film, which was certainly a lot more expensive. Yeah, I agree with you on all of that. I will say, I don't know if it will work only because part of the theme of this story, at least as Ken Russell chooses to tell it, is the ambiguity of uh, Valentino's sexuality for people. That's true. Yeah. And, and so, um, and again, I'm not, that's not to cast aspersions on, on Franco Nero per se, but his vibe is a little more uh, thuggish, ruggish, raw. You know what I'm saying? He's and a virile so, dude, right? I mean, that's it's yeah. something that exudes from him. Absolutely. And, and part of the story that we get from the Ken Russell thing, and again, this is coming from me as someone who's not as familiar with Valentino in real life. I know this movie now. I've read a little bit online, uh, but I don't know a ton about him. And so my assumption is the way that the public interacts with him, at least in this movie as part of it, is that they see someone who is beautiful and artistic, and then they assume that he then is homosexual. And right. um, uh, it's unclear if he might have been uh, bisexual or whatever, whatever his sexuality was, but it seems to be his presentation as part of that assumption. Uh, someone who is as manly and tough as Franco Nero could easily be gay, but would he walk around having everyone accuse him of being gay and that's what i'm right, that's what right, i'm right. wondering is like it, it's not that everyone had inside knowledge on valentino's actual sexual activities it's just they saw an artistic italian person and were like well that guy must be queer you know like that was the assumption that they made about him because of his presentation does franco nero come off that way i don't know whereas the actor in this uh in the movie we're about to discuss um he could give off a little bit of a of a of a uh a, a, a way uh-huh. of being in the world that someone could interpret either way, regardless of what his actual sexuality was, that certain homophobic people might see and make an assumption, which is sort of the story, right? The story isn't 
who he was actually sleeping with per se. The the movie isn't that interested in that necessarily, but it is about how people saw this artistic Italian man and just assumed either he was fucking all the women or fucking all the men and no one could decide which they hated more was sort of sort of where the movie goes but yeah no yeah that's exactly right i mean look liam and i we don't pretend to be experts on the life of rudolph valentino who for those who who don't know was a silent movie star but also one of the first big kind of sex symbols of that era and one that was like massively famous and his death at a very early age brought people literally rioting in the streets uh, at his funeral. I mean, this was a person who was a massive star and it's a little embarrassing that we don't know more about him. I actually have seen some of his silent films, but he doesn't register for me because the, the charisma of that era is more than just what you see on the screen. It's kind of the, uh, it's in it's in the papers, right? It's on it, it's, right. it's being broadcast everywhere, so it's kind of in the air, and it's hard to kind of replicate that. But I will say that whatever the tone of this TV movie is, it it almost certainly doesn't have the interest in his sexuality that Ken Russell's film does, because 100%. all the way through that is a theme, as you suggested, Liam. It goes back to you again and again. It's not is he gay? It's does it matter if he's gay or not? And the public. Some members of the public, maybe a lot of the members of the public, and certainly in the media, are fascinated, if not obsessed, with his sexuality. It seems that everyone he meets, and we'll talk more about this when we actually get into the movie, everyone he meets is making an assumption about his sexuality in a direction or the other, and sometimes in both directions, that somehow he is both gay and having sex with all the women, which is really weird, but some of the characters seem to suggest that. Anyways, we'll take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to dive into not the TV movie, but the movie movie, Valentino, from 1977, directed by Ken Russell. We'll be right back. They sit in some dark room to see me flickering past their eyes. They destroy your marriage. They tear to shreds. My vision of heaven. Shall we be together? Yes! My meaning for existence. Life of 1920s movie star and sex symbol Rudo Valentino is the subject of 1977's Valentino, directed by Ken Russell, who you may know from The Devils, Tommy, Altered States. I mean, it's Ken Russell. Come on. Crimes of Passion. Where are you at? Uh, uh, also co-written by Ken Russell and Mardik Martin, who uh, apparently worked with Scorsese on Mean Streets, Raging Bull, uh, you know, a comp- accomplished fellow, uh, starring uh, Rudolph Noriev. Uh, as Rudolph Valentino, uh, Leslie Karen, uh, Michelle Phillips, Carol Kane, obviously, Felicity Kendall, Seymour Castle, Peter Vaughn, and of course, William Hootkins as <laughs> Mr. Fatty Arbuckle, basically. Uh, and, you know, Hootkins, you know, I know him basically from, uh, from this and uh, hardware. So it's, you know, kind of a kind of a funny combination of, of things there for me. Anyways, uh, in the film. He's the guy in Raiders of the Lost Ark who says, Top men. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. He's Porkins from Star Wars. I don't remember that. All right. He's the larger gentleman in Star Wars who gets blown up real good. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, in this film, Carol Kane plays Gene Acker, who uh, was a silent film star, uh, but is perhaps better known for being uh, Rudolph Valentino's first wife. Um, in the film, 
we'll talk about the role very specifically. It's it's a bit diminished than uh, the important role that she played in Rudolph Valentino's actual life, although their marriage was not um, to be uh, in a real sense. They, they uh, had issues on their honeymoon night such that she locked him out of the room and it is rumored that they never consummated the marriage. I don't know that anyone was there to keep track of that, but that's what people say. Um, <laughs> and uh, that divorce, uh, that would that eventual divorce would be very important for Valentino because he wouldn't wait the required year uh, after that divorce to get remarried and thus was uh, briefly arrested for bigamy after marrying uh, Natasha Rombova in Mexico. It turns out that in California, there's a mandatory year post-divorce before you can get married again. And, you know, Valentino doesn't care about that. So he fled to Mexico. And when he came back, they were ready to make him suffer for that. <laughs> he got some bad legal advice. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> Regardless, Doug, there's a, you know, we're going to talk about Carol Kane's role and, and, and the decision <laughs> about uh, how she's, you know, how that real-life person is being portrayed in the film. But before that, I just want to know what you think of Ken Russell's riveting biopic, Valentino. Liam, I feel very mixed about Ken Russell's Valentino. I am a big Ken Russell fan, uh, particularly his work in this time period. Throughout the 1970s, he takes so many big swings, so many visual uh, chances and and I was expecting to see a lot of this in the movie, but it's not. In a lot of ways, it's a very usual biopic. I mean, there are still flourishes of Ken Russellness throughout. In particular, the scene where Valentino gets arrested and we see him in jail, and that is feels very much like a Ken Russell sequence. And the the, the structure of the film itself, which is told in flashback from Valentino's funeral. I think has a lot of potential and it does have a lot of visual interest and it is a beautiful looking movie and it is worth seeing just on that alone. But it does kind of presuppose that the audience gives a fuck about Valentino and honestly actually knows about Valentino enough to care about what's going on. And I just don't have that within me. I do like the silent era of cinema. I have a lot of interest in the the people around that time period. A lot of the actors and the performers and the uh, the producers and the directors. That said, Valentino is not someone who's ever struck me as uh, as someone that I've pursued a lot of of knowledge about. So I was expecting this movie to kind of inform me on a lot of that, but instead, it kind of presents him as a blank slate of a character where people are presenting their own desires and wants and needs upon him. And that is kind of reflected in the performance, uh, the main performance of um, uh, Rudolf Nureyev as Valentino in the film. And so it's a movie that left me feeling pretty empty. And that's not usually something I feel when watching a Ken Russell movie. Usually I just feel inspired and, and, and kind of overwhelmed. Even the ending of this movie where you have uh, Valentino... Uh, Basically, we know that he's already dead because we have the funeral as a structure of, of flashbacks throughout the movie. He passes away in a very non-dramatic fashion, and the movie just throws up the end title card, and and that's it. And it just it just left me feeling like the movie was a bit half baked. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree here. There's not a lot of Ken Russellness, let's say, or at least by my reading, uh, to to grapple onto here. I I want to lift up the idea that the funeral, right, is the sort of the, the setting of the film, and then we are going through flashbacks as told by various people who are at the funeral uh, into Valentino's life because it creates this uh, vignette structure, the pacing of which is entirely jarring. We're just jumping into uh, various moments in Valentino's life that we're supposed to understand the meaning of, the context of, the significance of them. Uh, and it it is not just alienating it in how I'm watching it, like the pacing of it for me as a viewer, but it's alienating from the character of Valentino. We are never given really to me enough to understand him. And, and it feels almost like that is intentional that uh, Ken Russell seems to be more interested in, if I can be sort of blunt, how Valentino functions and less on who he is. Yeah. So absolutely. the story is what Valentino did in being who he was to the world around him, how he affected the industry, the culture, the individual people, how people acted more or less like themselves because of who he was, how they responded to him. But we're not given a lot of insight to him. And it really feels like 
Ken Russell isn't particularly interested in who Valentino was, and uh, certainly the the performance of a uh, you know of uh, our our main actor here is he he's a very talented dancer, and he's given a few moments to show us what a talented dancer he is. But that's not the majority of the film, and I don't know that he gives us much in his acting to tell us who Valentino was per se. Everything feels very surface. Everything he's doing feels very surface. And and we're given a blank slate, which maybe as as you've sort of suggested is maybe intentional. Maybe that's what we're supposed to be getting, but I found it a little bit alienating and I found myself wondering why should I care about what I'm watching? You know, do do you think Doug that that part of the issue here is that we're going into this a little bit ignorant as to Rudolph Valentino himself is that maybe a barrier for us as viewers I mean I think so and I wonder if maybe in this mid-70s period whether it be because of the release of biographies and also that tv movie that we've already mentioned that there was kind of a general knowledge about Valentino's life that just doesn't exist in the year 2021 so there was an expectation that people would already know at least portions of this story and so the movie could be interested in more things it can be more satirical about the Hollywood side of thing it can focus a little more on his sexuality which this movie has a lot of interest in whether he was homosexual or whether he was bisexual or I mean there's really no clear answer but then we do know that he was very upset at the idea when people challenged his sexuality when people tried to label him during his lifetime it made him very angry and that is a big part of probably the interest that Ken Russell had in the film because that's something that he plays with in a lot of his different movies but also the casting of Rudolf Nureyev again not really uh known as an actor known as one of the greatest ballet dancers who's ever lived but also you know a man who was openly gay a uh, a performer who in this case is Russian playing Italian, playing the great Latin lover, like all these layers of artifice. I mean, maybe that's that's part of it as well. There's a part of me that thinks, you know, the fact that he's kind of a blank slate is an intentional choice because right. you could you could fit in any performer who becomes this kind of idyllic uh, figure, uh, someone where, where, you know, whether it be an Elvis Presley or Beatles or, you know, people who who... who are so beloved that in the case of uh, Valentino, you know, people were committing suicide when he passed away because they can't even imagine living in a world where he no longer lives. So, I mean, I do think that it's it it's heightened to an extent. It's just not heightened as much as I would have expected from someone like Ken Russell, who again is, has really gone over this territory about a character who is so beloved that people are falling at their feet. They almost see them as a god. This is something that he seems to have an obsession with in a lot of his movies in this time period. But here, except for a few sequences, it it kind of feels bog standard. I wonder how it would compare to the TV version. I got to say, though, Doug, I want to circle back on this sexuality question because I think the film starts off being very ambiguous. We're given a Valentino who is – he's – I guess what's at stake here, Doug, is that I think it seems to me as a viewer – that Valentino is interested in defending his manhood and that the society is critiquing his manhood through his sexuality. Yes. But at the beginning of the film, it seems very likely that he might fuck men. Like that, yeah. that is part of the deal. But by the end of the movie, it feels to me as a viewer, even though it's not explicitly stated, that we're given a more heteronormative Valentino by the end. And my wonder is, has Ken Russell conflated the question of manhood with the question of sexuality in telling the story? And I, I'm not saying he has, but that's sort of my wonder. Because by the end, some of the ambiguity that makes the beginning of the film interesting is no longer there. And maybe that's just the result of Valentino feeling the need to constantly defend himself uh, in this culture, in this sort of patriarchal framework. But it just feels less interesting by the end of the movie for me. And I don't know if I, you see I mean, that I guess all. I guess you could see it on from the other side, which is the idea that a homosexual man at this time period would have been seen as feminine. And one of the things that... Valentino was criticized for in the mainstream press was that he was feminine, which is why they accused him of being homosexual in the first place. And this is a a movie that wants to reinforce that you don't have to 
live up to any kind of stereotypes or labels in regards to right. it. He could be a gay man and still be a very manly man or a very kind of traditionally manly man and do things like, you know, fight boxing matches and drink people under the table, but still be a gay man. Just like how uh, Leslie Karen in her performance is Alan Nem- uh, Nazimova, a director who was openly bisexual and in the movie seems very open about her sexuality and doesn't seem to have a care in the world about her relationships with women. Someone who is so confident in their own skin that they can, I mean, flaunt is not the right word, but at the time period it might be seen as flaunting, right. that she can live in this skin in a way that Valentino doesn't feel like he's able to because he's always trying to have to prove something, whether to himself or to the world. I just wonder, though, I just wish that the movie could have maintained, like, th- there's a way to understand him feeling attacked that right. maybe still doesn't try to answer the question. But, you know, he's he by the end of the film, he's not even given really many moments for us to understand that it isn't it is ambiguous you know like i think i think some viewers might by the end of the film think that the that ken russell has made a decision about him i think he has though right because why would you keep asking the question if you didn't think you already knew the answer right the thing is it's not just a suggestion it's not just that people are accusing him all the time i mean the movie sets him up the first time we see him we see him dancing very comfortably with a man and there's no reason for a person you or me or anyone else to think just because two men are dancing together that they're gay but the movie wants us to think that because the other characters in the movie think that as well and i do think it's reinforced because we're told again and again that he can't perform sexually with his wives and and that he you know that that for whatever reason that uh that he has trouble kind of consummating these moments and and i don't think that that is accidental that it's brought up again and again and that it's trying to be reinforced all throughout it i do think at the end of the day either ken russell thinks that valentino was gay or that he was at the very least bisexual i but i think the the ambiguity i mean we don't have to keep harping on this but sure i think i think at the beginning of the film i was excited about the idea that like the simple truth is that he might have been gay he might have been bisexual he might have just been a man who people perceived as effeminate because it made them feel better Absolutely. about the fact that they're all the women they knew wanted him. Cause that was the cultural reality is that he was a sex symbol at a time when being a sex symbol wasn't a common thing. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, there, there's all kinds of reasons for him to be attacked and, and we can talk more about that in a little bit. But my, my, my main thought was just, I, I wish some of the ambiguity at the beginning of the film was present at the end, mm. but the film just seems less concerned about that. It's sort of like, well, we've made up our mind. And I think, you know, part of the reality of a, of a movie like this is there's that distance. You know, we don't really know. And and in a way, I, I think that's the other thing I kind of want to ask here. Like, I'm, I'm really frustrated watching this film by the, by the pacing of it, by yeah. the lack of connection with Valentino. But what I can't tell here, Doug, is, is am I – Am I unhappy with this film because biopics are bad? Or am I unhappy with this film because it's a bad biopic? Or am I unhappy with this film because it's not even a biopic? It's just an artistic interpretation of what could have been. Like, is part of the issue here that it's not even a biopic? That it's like something else that Russell is trying to do? I'm not sure. I don't don't know. I think the movie would have been better if it wasn't a biopic, right? Right. Even if it was about a character that was similar to Valentino as opposed to being about Valentino himself, simply because the need to bring in a lot of the details and also having characters reference things that happened in his life just to make sure that we're aware that they know what's going on and to have it sort of chronological. It, it, the best parts of this movie are when it is not tied to reality but unfortunately it too much is tied to reality the thing about the structure of this movie is that it should work it's basically the citizen kane structure right you're you're introduced to these characters who are telling a story about a person we have a flashback we see the moments in his life uh, citizen kane is about a, a, not a real person even if it's inspired by a person but that feels when you watch citizen kane you feel like you're getting the scope of a whole life in this movie, you really feel like you get almost nothing about him. You get, you know, you get these glimpses, but you never really feel like you have any insight into the man. And again, it's unfair to compare this to Citizen Kane, though it's kind of interesting. We're talking about another Kane in a show called Praising Kane. Uh, but, you know, it does show that the structure of something like this can be used to tell an engaging story that gives you insight about a, a person. And in this movie, we don't really feel that. In this movie, we feel like someone took his biography 
and pulled out the five most significant moments or ten most significant moments, and then they are put in some sort of chronological order, and then we kind of go through them one by one. It feels like a travelogue of someone's life as opposed to a complete story. Yeah, it it's there's a real um, failure. I mean, we've already talked about the failure to set context, and that yeah. could be us, whatever. But there's a real failure here to connect these vignettes in a way that's compelling. They feel random, and I think there's a bit of an artistic license with that. Memory sure. is random. If we were all sitting around, if Doug died, and we're all sitting around talking about Doug, me and Jill, and then all you <laughs> fans of the show, the stories would be random, right? And there's a certain amount of artistic license to that. But you also have an obligation as a director to help your audience sort of follow that narrative and understand why it matters. And not all of that is clear here. It feels like just random bits of this man's life were picked out. And I agree, if that's what we're going to do, then find an artistic through line, right? Like if 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 the decision here is we don't have to tell a, a – a completely linear narrative of this person, right? Then A, don't tell a linear narrative. Like, let's not have all the stuff go in order because there's a certain artifice that everyone who's at the funeral happens to be people in his life at specific times so that they go right. in chronological Absolutely. order. Absolutely. Which is ridiculous. But then also, um, tell the stories in such a way that we have a view of this person that's your artistic vision of them. But it doesn't feel that way. It feels like even though the stories are random, they're meant to give us a picture of this person that is purely biographical. And that, for me, doesn't really work. Doug, you did a little more research than I did, uh, and, and you're saying it's it's a little too much like a biopic. Would you say that this film is mostly historically accurate, or is there a lot of legend at play here, the same way that there's a lot of assumptions going on about uh, Valentino's sexuality? I mean, it seems like the events that are being shown here are representative of real events in his life. It's just that when you watch them, there is sometimes a sense of, of again, artifice that are placed on top of it. And I wish that they went further in that direction. I don't need to see a factually accurate, as, as again, you've mentioned, chronological look at this person's life. I can read a book on him. I want to see... I, when this movie taught, has kind of a larger theme, when it has the idea of, of kind of this idolization of celebrity, when it tries to poke fun at Hollywood a little bit, even when it, it takes a few shots at his own kind of ego and the way that he saw himself, I find that a lot more interesting than just these are the events of Valentino's life. But, I mean, to get back to your question, it, it my, uh, and I'm only taking this from the amount of research I did, it does seem to be fairly accurate to the life, but you know, it's like at the beginning of the movie when the funeral happened, and on the DVD it actually has some footage of his funeral. When the when the funeral happened, people legitimately did riot. Did they break in through the funeral home, and did they have to take the tops of the coffins uh, and and nail them to the wall in order to cover up the holes that the people went in? No, that feels like something that Ken Russell added to it, and good. That's way more interesting than kind of minor riots that might have been breaking out all over the place, which is not to uh, discount the power of a riot in any way. But it's just this it's a movie that I feel like is hampered by its need to be accurate, um, even though the it's it really springs to life when it doesn't when it when it moves away from that, when it feels like it can take a lot of license. And that happens in a couple of sequences, as I said, in the prison sequence, which it really gets out of control. It's really the highlight of the entire movie. And in the boxing sequence at the end, which, again, that boxing event actually happened. Did Valentino come out and he was clearly hated by every single person in the crowd, despite the fact that we have seen that in recent memory, people loved him so much that they would right. line the street, basically screaming his name out outside his house because they love him so much. It's it, it it's just it, that doesn't feel real, but that's OK. The problem is tonally this movie shifts all over the place. There are some moments which are which are just feel like they're just plucked from history, that they're just supposed to be recreating an actual event. And then you get these massive set pieces that are. Uh, a lot more fanciful and a lot more fun. 
Yeah, there's a lot of moments when they're pulling onto movie sets and it's pure chaos. People just like shooting at each other and explosions. <laughs> yeah. I, there's and a great that, part. Sorry, just to bring it up. Remember, there's this great part where they're on like a Western set and yeah. there's basically a whole story occurring behind them. Like every single thing that you'd like to see in a Western movie is being filmed right behind them. And it was just like, that is the kind of visual that I was hoping for, right? Things that that's no way that that happened in real life. But who gives a fuck? Well, and so the one of the things I was wondering, Doug, and, I, and I'd like your take on this, our assumption as Ken Russell fans, right, is that what makes this movie not great is the lack of Ken, that, <laughs> that Mr. Russell needed to insert more of his weirdness into the film. Is it possible that in inserting the bits of weirdness he did and not telling more of a coherent just story about this person that that was actually the problem that a different director would come at this material and help us understand and be compelled by Valentino more like is it that uh, even though we love what Ken Russell does that what he does isn't fitting for this kind of story because he's only interested in the eccentricities and he's not interested in the person behind the spectacle of it all i mean the concern there would be that then you would have only the down points of this movie and none of the high points right sure that, that instead sure. yeah you can tell a very traditional uh biographical tale of someone's life and sometimes those movies are very good you know a lot of people like walk the line i didn't but a lot of people do there's a lot of musical biopics which take that track to the point where you know um um Walk Hard could make fun of all the tropes that that came out of those type of biopics. But some people really like a lot of those. And there are a lot of, of good ones outside of that as well that don't fall into fanciful territory, that they're just trying to tell a story from beginning to end. And they're trying to make it very realistic. And they're trying to uh, honor the person that they're telling the story of. But I don't think I think that Ken Russell really is interested in Valentino. But I also think that he's more interested in what Valentino meant, what he represented. And this is a movie that doesn't seem to know whether it wants to tell the story of what he meant or it just wants to tell his story. And that is where it, it kind of falters. And my concern would be, and I would imagine, even though we've already said we have not seen the made-for-TV version, I bet that version is a lot more kind of straight ahead. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. And whatever we might say about this movie, I bet... It, I bet it's less boring. I bet that 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 because you can still point at these sequences, at these moments where Ken Russell can inject maybe himself or whatever, maybe something that he was interested in in it, that it's still more exciting than what you would get from from a made-for-TV version. Now, I'm saying that again without having seen that version, but I'm willing to bet that that's the case. I don't know because I don't have an appreciation for Valentino, and I think that's part of it. I don't think that keeps us from being able to evaluate this movie, but it is true that, like, there are people whose lives I think are interesting enough that if, I mean, Ken Russell has passed, unfortunately, but if a director like Ken Russell came in and like sassed it up, I'd be like, well, that was stupid because they're interesting and I don't need your weirdness to make this more interesting. I don't know that I feel that way about Valentino, though, even though I do think the phenomena is interesting, but that is what he's interested in, too. So for me, I got to agree. I think his version has to be better than whatever a traditional telling of this story would be. But who knows? Maybe we'll find a copy of that TV movie and watch it and think, oh, no, we were wrong. Ken right. Russell <laughs> really crapped this thing up. Uh, but, but, I mean, the thing is, but the thing is, of course, that that version already existed at this point. Right. So, so I mean, why would he even do it? Yeah. yeah why yeah, would yeah. he even do it? Right. Exactly. Yeah. I do want to I do want to um, ask you, we've talked a little bit about our, our you know, the, the main performance here. We haven't really talked about the supporting cast which is mm -hmm. you know pretty broad and has some really interesting people were there any performances that stuck out to you either for their quality or lack thereof <laughs> well leslie karen uh, i think she's the highlight of the entire movie it really does spring to life when she's there and again she does serve as sort of a counterpoint to valentino not only because of her comfort with her sexuality but also the fact that she seems to latch on to people and uh, in a way, it's sometimes like Valentino does, but she is able to kind of float in and out of those situations. Um, I, I just feel like everything that he was aiming for and kind of to, to trying to grasp in his personal life and maybe in his professional life too, that she seemed to have and he 
and, and she she kind of floats out of the movie at some point, even though she she arrives back with the the funeral sequences. But she's a real highlight. I don't think Michelle Phillips is particularly good in this movie as Rambova. Sure, um, it, it, she just and a lot of it I think has to do with the lack of chemistry between her and Nuriev as Valentino. And I guess notoriously, they did not get along when they were filming this movie. That might be part of it. I think Seymour Cassell is really good. He really brightens up the movie. Hunt's Hall, the, uh, well, I saw him as well, in the Bowery Boys films when I was a kid. Uh, it's fun to see him show up. I mean, he doesn't really have a ton to do, but he is kind of memorable. And I do really do want to mention William Hookins as Fatty Arbuckle. There's a sequence in this movie, a really memorable one, a quite a good one, I thought, uh, where uh, Valentino is dancing with his uh, drunk partner at this kind of dance hall. He's putting on this performance, and the crowd is just laughing at him, and the, the, the center of this laughter comes from Fatty Arbuckle, the famous silent comedian who was um, kind of unfortunately tarnished with the, with the story that ended up not being true about his life. But a famous comedian, he is played as the most obnoxious, piece of shit he could possibly be right. Just, there's nothing funny about him he comes out does all this kind of um the, the like this, this really ridiculous broad comedy that no one could possibly find funny and then he comes out and he just laughs his ass off screams and yells at these people and then uh, after that happens what happens is valentino takes uh fatty arbuckle's partner his girlfriend or whatever carol kane plays her in this movie uh, and we know that she's supposed to be Gene Acker. And he takes her onto the dance floor, dances with her, and basically humiliates Fatty in front of everybody. And Fatty turns red and he yells. And it's it's a ridiculous sequence in a lot of ways. And uh, I think it's a little unfair probably to Fatty Arbuckle in real life. But it is probably the highlight of Carol Kane's part of this movie. Yeah, I, I liked it. Uh, but I was forced to think like is this really fatty arm like i don't know there, there was part of me that was kind of but again I, you know it's ken russell as we sort of said ken russell isn't necessarily tied to any sort of uh, he's not even he's not even he's not even fatty arbuckle in the movie right he's just a he's mr just fatty. Fat. Mr. yeah fatty. right so these are these are not meant to necessarily directly represent real life people even though they obviously are some of these supporting players i mean not not when it comes to valentino but like i've seen a lot of old fatty arbuckle and fatty arbuckle and buster keaton shorts and he's such a, you know he's a man that was very light on his feet and had a lot of physicality about him and while i li really like seeing william who show up in this movie that this pr this presentation of fatty is very different than what my understanding is of him in real life um i also wanted to point something out that i think is is worth talking about a little bit um, even if we don't necessarily love this movie, sometimes it, it offers any film can offer opportunities for discussion. And one of the things I found interesting about this film is highlighting something I think is very true uh, in that not just American culture, but it does happen here a lot that various symbols of sexuality, especially if they are perceived as somehow being foreign or not very American in some way, are then attacked for their sexuality, right? So, like, uh, in the film, of course, Ken Russell's made an assumption uh, about uh, Valentino's sexuality. But in the public, there's really not much for the public to go on to make this decision that he must be gay. It really seems to be a projection of the insecure masculinity of the patriarchy, that it's mm -hmm. like, oh, he can dance, he's pretty, all our women want to have sex with him. Clearly, he must be gay. And it's, you know, in some ways, there's something there that's very Ken Russell. Like, like I think, you know, a really interesting scene is uh, the shot of all the women in the theater watching him in the chic. And it's supposed to be this rape scene. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's really clear that all these women are not perceiving this as a threatening scene, that they're all imagining what it would be like to be alone with Valentino. And I think that is not meant to just be a commentary on how much women loved him though it is that it's also a commentary on the sort of the suppressed sexuality of the age Absolutely. and that's very much a ken russell ken russell's sure. always showing you something and talking about something else at the same time <laughs> and so i think there's there's a lot of that going on in that scene but it made me think about that that suppressed sexuality and how that's coming across in these men and it's not just the re newspaper reporter though that's the obvious example right is this man is willing to you know, fight him in public and make him feel like shit be, because of how threatening he is. But that that happens to him all over the place. That men want to attack him. It's in the prison. It's in the scene where the where the 
board lighting guys drop the puff on him. Yeah. It's like everywhere he goes, it's not just that he is different, but that that difference means he is being attacked or debased, even when, in theory, he has all the power, right? He's the famous star with all the money, but these dudes are just, like, not impressed by that shit in the least. Uh, and, and Anyways, I just found that aspect of the film kind of interesting to think about, this idea that, like, um, it, it's not necessarily that any of them have inside tracks on who it is that he's having sex with. It's that they see him and assume that there's something... Uh, you know, not manly, which means gay, which, as we know, does not mean gay. But for for them, you know, there's something suspect there that has to do with femininity. I don't know. I'm I'm very interested in the projected gender of this whole scenario. I mean, I think it's a it's a it's one of the more interesting parts of the movie. I mean, think about the hassle of being saddled with the title of the world's greatest lover. Right. right? Exactly. So someone who <laughs> right that that that. The thing that you have to live up to, to not just be um, someone who is desired by all women, but that you have to live up to that and actually perform to that, right? I mean, you there is an interpretation of this movie and of this person that the reason he couldn't consummate a lot of this and that he was had a reputation for maybe not being as sexual as you might think is that he couldn't possibly live up to what people's expectations were of him right. in regards to that. I mean, even in the one real sex scene that is in this movie... Um, that you see in, in any detail, it's played for straight comedy, and it lasts what thirty seconds. It's it's not really about his prowess at all. But I mean, we have seen this repeated in history again and again. When a famous person is thought to be unbelievably desirable to women, the 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 whether it be the press, whether it be the public, they try to tear them down. They try to accuse them of being gay, of being feminine, whether that be. Elvis Presley, whether it be like a boy group like uh, New Kids on the Block or In Sync or the Backstreet Boys, I mean, the, they're known for being incredibly attractive to right. women, and not just to women, but attractive generally. And I mean, we grew up in the same era, Liam. We know that I, I heard on the playground when I was a kid about New Kids on the Block being gay and about the Backstreet Boys being gay and In Sync being gay, and that those are just some small examples, and and those are even groups that are designed specifically around attractiveness, it doesn't even count like movie stars and things like that who are always facing accusations like that. It just reminds me, and, I, and I, it, this is a random reference, but I think people will know what I'm talking about. I have a friend named Joey Ross who runs an Instagram account called uh, Fellas Is It Gay When? Or so, <laughs> something like that. But basically it's he finds all these tweets where people just – uh, attack things as being somehow homosexual that are often very normal things and sometimes are tied to very heterosexual things. So people say, you know, oh, if if he goes down on you on the first date, he must be gay. Yeah. And, you know, and Joey's saying, fellas, is it is it gay to enjoy sex with women? You know what I mean? Like <laughs> that seems to be there's so many things that just are about being conscientious or being good at dancing or, you know, things that are just positive qualities that some cishet man is ready to attack, usually white, but not exclusively white, is ready to say, well, that's 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 suspect. And of course, that's what they mean when they say gay. They don't even care about the actual thing itself. You know, they're using this idea as a way to besmirch the very essence of something that is masculine. And of course, it's 2021. We should all know there really isn't an inherent masculinity. This is all gender performance, blah, 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 blah. But it, it is interesting how, for me at least, seeing the performance of that, that's one of the dynamics of the film that is, I think, very insightful. That this, that it's not you know, something that we, we haven't really said but is worth saying, that the reason this phenomena of Valentino is probably so interesting to Russell and a little bit interesting to us is that he's his level of stardom was like Beatles level. It's like the yeah. first – like one of the first things that we have, at least that I know about, where women are like gathering outside of his home, throwing yeah. themselves mm -hmm. at him. You know, there's this sequence where he's trying to perform a seance with his uh, wife – and uh, 
and outside there's this like huge gathering of his fan club and they're reading poetry he wrote but it's coming across like a spell and it's a spell that's like disrupting his concentration and really causing his wife to want to like be away from him because they want him so badly and and this idea that like she has him and they will never truly have him and it's all very like psychosexual stuff um that that is heightened, obviously. Ken Russell's an artist and whatever, but it's not totally inaccurate, right? Like, people were fucking crazy for this dude. And I think there's something there that is not just tied to, like, uh, women. And, and of course, men, I'm sure there were men who were attracted to him too, but it's not just about the, the female psyche. There's also this way that the movie shows us how much that must have fucked with these mediocre boring men i mean that's what's happening with this newspaper guy right he's a he was a boxing champion in the navy some what (laughs) 40 years ago and now he's gonna beat up an actor like for what fucking reason the presentation of that guy is so funny too this kind of like fat idiot he's (laughs) such a dingbat (laughs) but i mean just going back to your point there it's something that i wish that they explored a little bit more one of the things i've always found fascinating is the idea of someone who is so beloved and creates that sort of mania within the public that if they were if they went into a crowd of these people who are who are all riled up that they the crowd might literally kill them that because they love them so much you know right. that to me is like they'll rip their clothes off and then they'll cut their hair and then they'll kill them right i, I like that i to me that is something worth exploring this movie doesn't go into that in much detail in fact Part of the difficulty about the chronology of this movie is that you don't see the build of the love for Valentino. It's right. like, it's like, hey, you know, uh, this movie's doing pretty well. I guess I'm a big movie star now. And then it just, you know, suddenly there's people outside of his house screaming and, and basically saying that he's a new god and things like that. It doesn't feel like the build is shown in enough detail. I think that's part of the issue with the pacing in general is like – if you're more interested in the phenomena, then show us more of that. But yeah. we're just seeing it through his eyes, and it does all probably seem pretty sudden in a way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's probably a way to help us get to that point. But again, I mean, I think part of this, I don't want to repeat ourselves, but there's probably some part of this where he's assuming people know. He's assuming people know some of this. Yeah. And like, I think it just it would help the audience to see a little bit more of that. All right. I don't, you know. I'm not trying to rush us per se, but I think we should spend a little bit of time talking about (laughs) Carol Kane, not just because she is the focus of this podcast, but because I think the way that her character is developed, knowing who she kind of represents in real life, is maybe indicative of something about the movie itself. Can you talk to me, Doug, about Carol Kane's performance as well as the way that the movie uses that performance? Her performance is great. I mean, she's sure. Carol Kane, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. The thing is, and I, I, there's a reason that we haven't been talking about her very much. She's only in the movie for about maybe seven minutes. That includes that lengthy sequence where she's just kind of on the outside looking in. She She's there with Fatty. Uh, we see Valentino dance with her. We see them in kind of a private moment. And then we never, never see her again, and we find out that they had gotten married and divorced. We never see that on screen. We never see their troubles. We never see any of the difficulty that even that you alluded to earlier about Gene Acker and how her actual life was. But uh, but in and, and in fact, when we do have that private moment, it's a little bit undercut by her having this mound of French fries that she <laughs> globs on all this ketchup onto. But I mean, it's still she's interesting. But I feel like that in terms of Carol Kane's presence in films, she has already hit a wall where she's sort of, sort of kind of regressing back to uh, the parts that we saw in the early 70s where she showed up for brief moments and she hasn't yet reached the fallout of the popularity of Annie Hall, which of course we wouldn't. It came out the same year as this film, where people are starting to see her in a different light and having a different sense of the kind of roles that she can play. I don't think we're going to see that until a couple of a couple more years from now, but uh, it, this movie does feel like kind of a waste of Carol Kane. It, it feels almost more like a cameo than it does an actual part, and that even comes down to the fact that her character is never named in the movie, and she's right. even not even credited with a name, even right. though she's based on a real person. I think that's what it boils down to, and, and it, again, I really do think it's in the indicative of the film itself that this film this is his first wife you know this is someone who must have mattered to him to some extent and in the film she functions as a joke about fatty arbuckle and an opportunity for him to dance more and a visual gag about french fries like that scene really serves two purposes here one 
he learns about movies and he should maybe think about being yeah, in movies. Yeah, because she's an actress, right? Yeah. And two, a visual gag about her and the French fries that's supposed to like make fun of the nouveau riche, right? That yep. she's famous and rich, but clearly has no class. Well, you know, fuck you. That's all yeah. I get to know about this woman who was actually pretty important to silent. You know, she, I, she I, doesn't even show up at the funeral, right? No, I mean, I, she's not even as important in the film as his first love that that the whole first twenty minutes of the movie focuses on, and that character disappears, and we never have any other kind of impact on the rest of the film. I just think the suggestion that she doesn't matter to this narrative in either the, his life or in the setting of the scene of the twenties. Uh, or, or the you know the silent film era is like it just feels a little disrespectful and you know again we love Ken Russell so this isn't an attack on Ken Russell I just think for this movie it's a decision that made sense to him that maybe shows a little bit like a detachment from the actual life of Valentino so yeah. I don't know I, again I agree with you her performance is great the way that this plays out to me felt really weird and even more so when I read how important this character I, I'll tell you what figuring out that the woman they were talking about as his first wife was this character took me a while yeah they me too absolutely they mentioned the divorce a couple times before I realized like Oh, her? Because there's no indication that there's much going on between them after that scene. It's it's a very strange decision, and it made me sort of wonder about the movie as a whole, honestly. But mm-hmm. you know, Carol Kane's cool. She's she's good in it. She's she's doing that voice that people would kind of know her for in a, in a way. <laughs> uh, but it's it's not you know it it doesn't feel phoned in. She's she's doing what she can with what she's given. I mean, we were we obviously had mixed feelings about Annie Hall, but what we didn't have mixed feelings w- w- about was how she was presented in Annie Hall right. as as a character that had a self-confidence about her, and that is not something that we've seen in a lot of Carol Kane performances, and it's not something that I think a lot of people saw in her. She tends to not, maybe meek isn't the right word, it's at least she plays characters that other people think are meek, and that's reinforced by her voice, and reinforced by her kind of waifish looks to a certain extent, and I feel like this movie is just playing on the cliche of who she was at that time, but we know, because we've seen 40 more years of performances, that she has so much more that she can give, and I'm hoping that we're going to see a lot of that in the next few films that we're going to cover. Well, I'm hoping we'll see that on the next episode where we cover Gene Wilder's The World's Greatest Lover from so 1977, strange. same year. Uh, she's on the poster, so I'm hoping we get a lot more of her in the film. And something that's interesting here, Doug, uh, apparently this movie, The World's Greatest Lover, was a term for Rudolph Valentino. So the plot of this movie is connected to Valentino? Question yeah, it's, it's so the, the plot is, and again, I haven't seen this film before. But I have not heard much about it, considering Me I mean, it has a fairly good pedigree. A neurotic baker travels to Hollywood to attend a talent search for an actor to rival the great Valentino. It's basically a parody of the life of Valentino. Carol Kane made two Valentino-centered movies in the same year. It's unbelievable. But I will say, Liam... I'm really glad that we watched Valentino and read a bit about him because I feel like we're going to have a better appreciation for whatever they're trying to do in The World's Greatest Lover. And also, by the way, it reinforces that there was a a Valentino interest in the air in the the late 1970s because why, why would you make a parody of his life unless people gave a shit about it? So it feels like that between 1975 and 1977, there was this renewed interest in Valentino as a person. And maybe from, from looking back from 2021, it's a little hard to relate to that. I'm sure everyone read about his bejeweled dildo and the Kenneth Anger <laughs> stuff and suddenly were interested in who, who he was. Um, look, Dubious tales in the Hollywood Babylon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> look, I, I love Gene Wilder, but I don't know why I haven't heard about this movie. I do see a very highly credited Don DeLuise, which gives me mixed feelings, to say the least. (laughs) Uh, uh, And so, I don't know. Maybe this is going to be great. Maybe it won't. (laughs) I will say, uh, for those of you listening who are Carol Kane uh, completists, I I, I don't think you shouldn't find Valentino. I think it's it's a... it's an okay movie, but I don't think it's essential. So if you're like, look, there's a lot of stuff here I'm trying to get through as I watch along with you guys, I think you could skip this film. Maybe that's maybe that's saying too much, Doug, but I think Valentino is a skipper for me. It's a lesser Ken Russell movie, but that yes. still makes it more interesting than a lot of other movies. That's that's fair. That is fair. But I I don't think I I don't think I needed it. But I, I don't know. Anyways, Doug, if they're interested in other Carol Kane movies as well as 
the myriad of other topics that we cover <laughs> on this particular podcast, as well as our friends' podcast, where can they find out more? Well, you can always find the latest episode over at Cinepunks.com, and you can find that under all sorts of social media under the name Cinepunks. Check it out. Lots of great writing, lots of other podcasts on there as well. Uh, if you want to find out all of our archived episodes of Praising Kane and our other uh, Cinema Smorgasbord podcast, go over to cinemasmorgasbord.com. Uh, we both have a section that, that breaks down just to those individual podcasts, or you can subscribe on your favorite platform, get all the latest episodes as they come out. Why don't you leave us a review if you get an opportunity as well? You can also follow Cinema Smorgasbord on Twitter at Cinema Smorg. That's S M O R G. You can always follow Liam on Twitter as well. That's at Liam Rules, R U L Z. And if you would like, you can follow me on there at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T I L L E Y. Thank you, Doug. And thank you, <laughs> everyone, for listening. Uh, you know, tell a friend, check it out, check out some other episodes. You know, toss us a review, toss us a rating on iTunes or wherever else you're listening to this. And we just want to say we appreciate you checking it out. Have a great night, everyone. The Sheik of Araby Your love belongs to me At night when you're asleep Into your tent I'll creep The stars that shine above Will light our way to love You'll rule this land